students now and the young professionals starting to become not only just active, but more entrepreneurial in defining the world that they want to work in. They do that by inventing projects. They do that by rewriting the code of whatever the software is. They see everything as a creative problem that is guided by some longer vision about why they're here doing this particular thing and living this kind of life. Hello and welcome to One to One. I'm Amelia, and for this episode, we're breaking a bit from the norm to feature three guests at once in our conversation with Rotolab, Michael Rotundi's new VR-focused startup. Rotundi and his co-founders Nels Long and M.A. Greenstein have ambitions to create uniquely VR environments for architectural education and practice, and in the process, completely upend how we learn and work. Inspired by decades of experience in architecture and VR's imminent future, Rotundi and his co-founders spoke with Paul Petrunia and I about socializing in VR, gaming as education, and what this new frontier could mean for tomorrow's architects. So, Michael, a few years ago, I had a conversation with you in your office, and uh, you brought up issues of augmented reality and virtual reality. Mm -hmm. Since then, those topics have become so much more mainstream, even though it wasn't, uh, they weren't new technologies since then. But it, it was very clear from that conversation that, that you have a deep interest in pursuing these technologies. And now we're seeing the formation of, of a new venture, Rotolab, that you've started up. And I was hoping that you can talk a little bit about how these interests formed based on your experience as a teacher and an architectural practitioner over the years and, and how you've evolved these interests into this new venture? Good opening question. I'll uh, talk about it as briefly as a sort of personal and then in a more public way. At the personal level, it's just uh, always trying to stay ahead of my curiosity about everything, and in particular, architecture and teaching, uh, both the practice and teaching the next generation, but then at the same time, wanting to continually learn new things myself. And it's not just about the new things. Years ago, I'll read things or I'll hear things or even imagine things, but then in order as a teacher to sound like you're speaking with authority, you say it was once written or you say Goethe once said, and then people listen. (laughs) I was uh, going through, I thought I had heard someone say that, or I had read, the different ways that you draw a building give you different ways of understanding the building. And so I started to look at two-dimension and three-dimension, which is an issue. Actually, it's a pretty great um, dialectic to, to be dealing with, uh, both as an architect and as a teacher, how to, how basically how to convert two-dimension into three-dimension. And you do it basically in the third eye. I started drawing a lot of axonometrics rather than perspective because I was interested in the, the precision of axonometrics and then how it could show you a measured uh, drawing. Anyways, Fast forward, when I started to see some of the uh, students at school in particular, there was only there was a ha- very small handful, it was only three, it was uh, 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 Nels and a, and a couple of other students were interested in working with game engines instead of regular software. And they were also putting goggles on, and I was fascinated by that. And I really wanted to understand better if it was possible to have a second, third eye. Could you envision things outside as well as inside? So the technology is really about the virtual technology, where the physical world and the virtual world come together. And again, the virtual world exists in the third eye, and it has for a very long time. And then the physical world is basically the world that has of gravity. So that when when the third eye was extended into the virtual technology, that became 
a, a big interest to me. I believe that I'm in my last phase of teaching. There's multiple phases. It begins with not being sure of what you're doing. And so you're paying attention to the students and then eventually you become sure of what you're doing and overconfident and you start thinking of the students as employees, you know, that they're basically doing your work, they're research assistants. And that you sort of let up as time goes on and realize that the students have to be given the privilege you were given when you were younger, which is nobody's telling you what to do. And then this phase, which is uh, the way to renew myself is by trying to enter the world of younger people and then have them tell me what they see and what they're thinking about. And then I figure out how to turn that into something, how to recontextualize that. And the technology just automatically becomes a part of that. It's also redefining practice. The one thing that I've realized in recent years is that all of the technology that we've used has been really good for architecture, but not very good for architects. It's made us have to produce things faster and cheaper. And uh, as a conceptual medium, not even a tool, a conceptual medium, it's... um, been relegated to, to the back burner. Even robots, the robots that we've had at school are seen as a way to make life easier for humans. You know, it's, it's something else MA and, and uh, Nels are exploring, uh, how to use robots as, as a co-creator in the whole process. Finally, bringing it into the studio and using virtual technology to see what it can possibly do, applying it to some hypothetical projects that we're trying to turn into reality, and then to bring it into school, to have the students play in ways that they would normally want to play when they're not at school. Where do you think this technology, specifically virtual reality, is right now in the context of, uh, of, of history? Do you think that we're working with this technology with a plan for the future? Or are we there right now where we can actually make substantial changes? I can give you a sort of an overview, and then Nels can, he's the one that you want to really ask that question to, to get really a hardcore answer. Yeah, I think, I think um, what we all do unwittingly and, and I think in a conscious way is um, we jump on the, the path, which is the trajectory, which is evolution itself. When you do it consciously, you are able to envision how any technology, earth-based technology or sky-based technology, earth-based coming from indigenous and sky-based coming from our world, which is the world of computers and digital this is a natural uh, evolution of uh, specifically of our discipline and the way we think about it. And uh, it's still being seen as a production tool uh, to a great degree. And it's now in the phase where it's really being explored theoretically, like software is a theoretical a proposition now, not just software, which I think is really important. And this technology, and I, I look at it in two ways. There's um, an analogy, but there's cranes that build buildings and there's cranes that build cranes. And uh, I'm interested in both. And uh, we've set up a a relationship, the three of us have set up a relationship and a practice that allows us to move, hopefully seamlessly, between both of those, where you can do pure and applied research. So I think that's what's beginning to happen in the school. The impatience that everybody has for fame and fortune, the end game being selling to Google rather than just pure knowledge and scholarship is is something that we got to, I think every generation has had to confront it, but I think we have to confront that in both practice and in education. So we're looking at both alternative ways to practice and alternative ways to learn. And more specifically, the shift right now, because the atomization of everything, breaking down into smaller and smaller entities, is informal learning, which I think it's not going to replace formal education, but informal learning is uh, definitely going to be, you're going to see that not just trending, but on a huge rise in the Western world where there's going to be a decline in applications in universities, except for very specific areas of of knowledge and uh, students 
not just doing online stuff, homeschool, online certification when you're just moving around the city. So I think, I think uh, that's what we're searching right now. It's, 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 it's not a mantra. It's just, it seems evident to, to us. Whatever seems evident to us, we're trying to bring it into the practice. So you think a reevaluation of the architectural education is, is inevitable and these types of technologies could help facilitate? Of all education. You know, we're still, uh, we're still uh, in the midst of an industrialized education, basically. Yeah moving as many people through as quickly as possible. So you perpetuate the system. It's administration-centered, teacher-centered, and it's shifting to student-centered. I mean, what we talk about is 21st century learning models is basically going back to the early 20th century and uh, grabbing a couple of Italians and bringing them to America, Montessori and uh, Reggio Emilia, you know, those, the open school in, in England. And maybe it takes 100 years to finally settle in. The difficulty is there's so many people that need to be educated that it's not possible to give everybody very specific attention. Well, but that's one of the, there's, I think I'm optimistic and we're optimistic in the, in the class, the seminars and the studios that we teach, that it is possible in a large formatted class to have people discover their own voice, let's say. Well, fortunately, you're Italian and you're already here. So I'm Italian and I'm ready for here. the next, next up. <laughs> so Rotolab offers three service platforms. There's the Roto Consult, Roto Incubate, and Roto Prize. Can you talk a little bit about what those different services are? Well, so you had asked a question about virtual technology, and Nels didn't get a chance to answer. So do you want to address that? Absolutely. Yeah. In, in light of what Roto has just Yeah, let's let's stated? get back to that. But the, 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 there's, there's still uh, just a few people at Cyrus that are trailblazing, I say. A couple of them have graduated. There's still one or two there, and Nels is uh, definitely one of them. And so one of my selfish objectives was to see with Nels, could we set up an alternative practice in the office? And so he's basically bringing an intelligence uh, to me that I didn't have. So he can... When you you asked the question, where are we historically within kind of on the continuum of virtual reality and, and virtual technology as a as a tool in in architecture. And when you look at a lot of the work that came out of Columbia in the 90s, you see a lot of use of animation softwares like Maya uh, for, for form generation and, and getting into the generation of video as a, as a primary a medium for representation. Where we currently are in, in, in the world of virtual reality is essentially the Wild West, right? It's, it's a land grab. People pick the lowest hanging fruit and they run with it as fast as possible. And as Michael said, they sell off what they can to to Google or to Facebook and and use that revenue to generate new companies. And, and that's really what we're seeing uh, at Rotolab. We'd like to propose kind of an alternate trajectory. We look at not just VR, but virtual technology in general as, um, as a means to really enhance senses and augment the imagination um, of the people using it with the intention of kind of accelerating knowledge transfer. When Virtual reality first came out to a point that you know the average person could could interact with it. I'm thinking about like the the Oculus DK1, the developer kit, the first developer kit. It was really used in the same way that those early kind of animation uh, adaptations were. It was a way of visualizing architecture, a way of visualizing form. And since then, we've really learned that it's it's most successful at not just providing project visualization, but instead providing real-time design platforms within virtual worlds that allow for people to come together and collaborate in, in a real-time virtual environment where everything is controlled by the designer and everything is controlled by the the brief of the project. So we've been we've been doing a, a little bit of work with that as well. I could go on, but we've been we've been exploring uh, gestural modeling and even bringing storytelling and 3D audio in as as design tools within virtual environments, and then syncing that to online repositories and databases to 
kind of act almost as as version control or version history within a modeling environment, which isn't isn't capable within something like Rhino or Maya. So, I mean, just speaking about the the general state of technology, is the hardware and the software that's currently available to us, is it satisfactory for what you're trying to accomplish? Or like, where do you think we need to move forward? What's what's the top priority in, in evolving this technology to achieve its potential? What we're really seeing is the the beginning of the end for the open source movement. And when I say that, I say that as an open source supporter and meaning that it's one of those things that we're going to look back on one day and say, hey, do you remember when things weren't open source? We're getting to a point now where information is available to so many people in so many different formats that if the tool doesn't exist, just go out and create it yourself. And so that's that's really the way that we've been addressing a number of these problems in Rotolab through our incubation programs is recognizing, curating a set of, of people and ideas that have these ideas for, for tools, have these concepts, have, have built these companies for tools that don't exist, and really trying to bring them in and say, you know, we understand, we're with you, and we're here to help. One way that we've done that is using uh, actually the, the work that I did at SciArc with Michael and bringing that into, into Rotolab as a, as a company called Second Studio where we're looking at creating essentially a reality engine for for multiple decentralized virtual studios that work across architecture design and healthcare to provide essentially virtual architecture for whatever that person and that professional needs. And that's that's something that we're looking forward to incorporating blockchain technology, incorporating decentralized technology, increasing open source and peer-to-peer activity in ways that the, the contributors to these code bases are actually being rewarded based on their use rather than through salary. That's really the future for technology is this idea of a thousand decentralized studios operating for free because uh, it's everyone's right to information. The one thing, though, uh, just uh, very simply for me, is there's a lot of things that are happening through technology that's reminding us that we're social beings and we should be cooperating. And, as, and the more we cooperate, we become smarter, faster when we're in proximity to other people. That's why cities exist, right? Social media could be there could be an argument that cities don't need to exist with social media because you can still be connected. We need to press flesh. There's an immense amount of information that's transferred through pressing flesh. And I think there's all these, this technology right now is allowing us to, I think we're, by de facto, we're, we're, it's, we're moving towards open source theories of, of economy and uh, we're, we're moving back into yeah. a kind of tribal sensibility of being much more cooperative, but truly, as McLuhan would say, at the global scale, which I, I find completely extraordinary. What's really critical, though, is that we figure out how to infuse meaning, potential meaning, into all of this stuff so that everything doesn't just become homogenous and, and entropy sets in. And if I can just follow that up real quick, uh, going back, I quickly mentioned our, our incubation programs that we have at Rotolab. And, and there's a lot of different models out there. You have um, Lean Startup and others. The analogous in the Lean Startup model is the MVP or the, the minimally viable product. What we say at Rotolab in order to continue this idea of meaning and value is that it goes beyond a minimally viable product and, and, and it goes into something that we refer to as a salt, discovering one's salt, discovering the salt within your company and within your idea. And that's a salt is something that's scalable, something that's aesthetically pleasing, something that's past its litmus test and something that is functionally or technologically functional. And so it takes that idea of a, a minimally viable product and it adds some design criteria to it. It adds, and we are a design innovation lab. We are a design incubator. And it really, it says that it has to be a minimally viable product plus something, right? Emmy, would you like to expand on that? Yeah. So if you stop for a second and you think about what we've addressed so far, 
which is to try and understand the impact of technology upon us as learners and as people that are now connected. You know, if the 19th century struggled with moving into industrialization and education was set up to help people pay attention and to remember things, and the 20th century was to solve that industrial model, but the screen came in, right, and cultural revolutions occurred. The 20th, 21st century is that the electronic knowledge, and we're connected now as social beings through technology. So what you've heard so far is a proposition about how to connect people and make social connections using technology as a way to do that within coming from the understanding of architecture and design. The incubation is in the spirit of recognizing that today so many young people recognize that their education doesn't have to end with just debt, right, or with just a degree, but that it can be a product developed into a company. There's a lot of push from this in Silicon Valley to move people, in fact, out of college and directly into entrepreneurialism. Huge push. So as educators, we and people who've worked for a long time, I've worked at Art Center for a very long time in with the theme of bodies in space, which is how I've come into this conversation. There's an interest in our, that we have, which is if we're going to push kids out there to be entrepreneurs, let's do it in a way that has depth and meaning and that gives them a sense of their social responsibility, as well as their understanding that technology is there to help them, not simply to master, and that they're there also to improve other people's lives. So considering the possibilities that we're all discussing as, a, as innately inherent to VR situations of education or collaboration among practitioners, what kind of either social science or neuroscientific research or psychological research or however, is there to kind of support how reliable VR is as a representation yeah. of an actual learning environment? What kind of basic premises are you guys operating on that say we can trust the VR scenario as enough like the learning scenarios we can study in reality to let us then grow that? Yeah. So first of all, I listened to your lovely conversation with Michael Rabib, and I wanted to build on what he's Excellent. The propositions he's, he's, he put out. So look, we're at a very early stage. There's not a lot of assessment of that, right? Because labs are just beginning, you know, labs have been working with VR actually for the last certainly 40 years. You know, in neuroscience, people are quickly moving into that space and advisors to our own lab are working on research projects on this very question of how do humans learn and explore space in a virtual realm. This builds actually on neuroscience research that is very robust of understanding rats that explore space and grow hippocampal activity. There's a lot of research that points to, and I can point to the work of Dr. Veronique Babot, who's also an advisor for, for us, uh, who's been working in hippocampal research and looking at wayfinding in complex virtual environments. And Dr. Clemenson, who's the Stark Lab, is performing a study. So there's an interest building on the research that neuroscientists know that enriched environments amp up exploration and that amping up exploration impacts memory and learning. Can you maybe define an enriched environment within this context? Yeah. So an enriched environment would think of an environment as in solitary confinement. That's not enriched. An enriched environment is one that takes advantage of architecture and product design to create challenges that are spatial, that tax proxemic learning, that are ones that play with everything we've thought of in terms of product design, 
light, texture, scale, shifting, takes advantage of everything we've known in terms of creating play spaces and recognizes that that play with objects, with challenge, actually amps up learning and memory. And so like the addition of like a, like a, like a wheel or, or a rolling ball in, in a rat's cage gives them the, that opportunity to play right? and, and transforms that otherwise um, kind of solitary confinement into an enriched environment that they can then grow hippocampal yes. activity. Is yes. And it also builds on research with Morris Watermaze was a very famous technology that's used that began to look at how rats learn directionality, how to learn how to leave a space. Uh, rats don't like water and they try and find the platform. And this maze, this water maze, challenged rats through landmarks to figure out how to leave the space. That was enriched. Just adding visual markers was considered a kind of enrichment to help the rats learn. So what you're seeing in neuroscience, there's been a history, a trajectory of new technologies coming in to look at spatial navigation. And that has led to an understanding of by creating visual cues, sound cues, tactile cues, you can then begin to change the way learning happens. So this sounds like a perfect segue into the work that you guys are doing with games and or just the conceptualization that you have with games, which I think is going to be a little bit more specific in your application than something as simplified as gamification, which is like a different bag. But maybe Nels, you can speak to this a little bit about the work that Rotolab is doing under the Affinity Gamer Space startup, as well as just what the utility is for games in the aspect of a learning environment or simply just a stimulating environment for any type of practitioner. So I was introduced to games as a tool for design when I was an intern at the Center for Maximum Potential Building Systems in Austin, Texas. Pliny Fisk, the, the co-director there, um, had me designing a trading card game for use in Haiti as a means of um, developing community based on the people that live there. Little did I know that that was going to ultimately kind of, you know, Turn into what I spend a lot of time working working on, um, and so when I came when I came to Cyark and, and Michael said, "Hey, we're going to do games this semester," I said, "Okay, that's what we're going to do." Um, and and throughout that semester and since then, we've, as you say, moving beyond gamification to actually understanding what are the social systems at work within games that allow them to be so successful, both in terms of entertainment, but also in terms of collaboration and team building and and information retention memory etc dexterity i mean it the the list the list goes on and on and on and excuse me and games have been tested in neuroscience labs right with more robust research and the virtual technologies build are building on that research absolutely yeah. so, so we brought as you brought that in as well it's not just the 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 theory and the practice is turning the studio itself into a facsimile of the social system that exists uh, in games and gameplay. Is it really just as simple as like if you give people the belief that the world they're operating in has rules, but not the same sacrifices or not the same repercussions as reality, then simply you remove the biggest ego barrier to actual learning. Is that really like one of the most simple, in your conception, one of the most simple reasons why gaming is an effective learning tool? That's the, the first thing, the first, I'll just say one thing. Yeah, you go ahead. Up. The first thing that uh, is very evident to me that has to be not only put into a brief, but discussed openly with students is how do they learn? the nature of their own learning and what their motivation is in, in the thing that really captured my attention with games when they you, you read statistics like seven billion hours a week 
you know, worldwide. Talk about selling to a big technology company, something like Twitch being sold for how well, many billion Twitch. dollars. Well, there's a fundamental difference between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. I was raised in a world where it was all extrinsic. You do this and you'll be a better human being, but you defer to the future. Or you do this, or you're going to go straight to jail without passing go. Worse than that, you do this or you're going to go to hell. And that was basically uh, the whole education system is based on that grading systems, evaluations of everybody and everything. If a young person has a choice to do things that they enjoy doing, to being in school, would they be in school or would they be doing that? They'd be doing that, you know? So if you're going to drink beer, bring it home. That's basically the way I look at it. And then the, the experiment is students learning, and even in the studio, uh, our studios, people learning how to mix it up not based on production models, uh, but based on discovery, trial and error, exchanging information, just to, for, for, for the greater purpose of everybody is learning and then there is output that comes from that because it's intentional behavior. One thing that we tested along those lines is the introduction of our own playing card system within the studio. So I, I think, I think you're, you're your comment about removing the ego from the equation, allowing them to operate through avatars is definitely a, a, it's a real one. We, we found that allowing our students to have uh, communication and, and dialogue online through an avatar rather than face-to-face -face as themselves allowed for much more conversation to happen um, and much more knowledge transfer. Um, and so we took that one step further and we designed and introduced a, uh, a trading card system that would essentially, you know, they would earn cards based on skills performed and they could trade those cards in to level up their avatar. That avatar could enact actions based on the level that it was at in order to rewrite the brief of the studio, to um, reserve extra time on, on digital fabrication tools, etc. And what we found so interesting was that while that's how we intended for that to work, what actually happened was they started pinning up the cards on the wall behind their desk, almost as if they were trophies. And when you walked around the studio, you could see who had done what, not by the work that was on their desk, but by the cards that were pinned up behind their desk. And and we realized the importance of that tangible reward to to incentivize a kind of informal personalized learning uh, that that we had, you know, ultimately been trying to trying to get to happen in the studio. And so that was kind of a, a happy accident. Well, you know, if you think about your question about how do we know certain technologies like gaming and virtual reality really make an impact on learning compared to what we think was working <laughs> years ago. Yeah. And Michael pointed to intrinsic and extrinsic. Right? How do we really know that all that, all that learning, whether it was in schools or in corporations, really worked? You know? I mean, there's been a big battle about assessment, which I am not an expert of and couldn't speak to you about. But instead, what we have is tremendous enthusiasm and wonder about the discovery of new experiences through new tools. And Michael started this by talking about wanting to be ahead of his curiosity. And so the three of us are brought together because we are interested in inculcating more experiences for people through wonder and play and creativity, knowing that there are many experiences we're not having by virtue of social pressures, habit. And let me just speak to the fact that there has been tremendous economic pressure on students and on workers where people don't have the same ease that they used to have 
to let themselves go. So it seems up to, um, I think we're taking the leadership to say, even in the toughest of times, if you think about Hollywood in the toughest of times, they had great movies, right? So uh, Busby Berkeley made it big in the, you know, the side of the depression. So we're saying is the toughest time now. Uh, Let's remember where we go to stay connected as humans and to let the technologies create those experiences for us. And and I think that leads right into your question then about the affinity gamer space startup, which is really that your question, where then do we go? We would postulate that you would then go to a gamer space and the gamer space. You is would this, physically go there. Physically yes, go yes, there. Yes. So, so the, the gamer space is, a, is an idea of, of Michael's that he got while teaching in, in in Tempe and going to a bar that was covered with Xboxes and Playstations and PC computers and otherwise uh, gaming. There, there was people playing magic cards there and, and other things as well. But its principal source of income was alcohol sales and food sales. And immediately came back to me and said, hey, this is a great idea for a learning space. How do we create spaces that people come to because they want to have a beer and they want to play League of Legends and have them come out knowing more than that. Have them come out with this, again, informal, having 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 taken part in this informal learning in this personalized approach to their own betterment and their own education. And so over the past, I guess, two years now, year and a half or so, we've been working on this idea for what we're referring to as, as a gamer space or borrowing the language from James G also at Arizona State University, the idea of an affinity space. So we're calling them affinity gamer spaces. And these are spaces that offer food and drink, that offer a certain amount of retail to get people in the door, that offer not arcade style games, but team-based multiplayer online role-playing games in tandem with studios rented by game developers and game designers so that they can test their new products in real time downstairs in these spaces and that the people playing those new games have the opportunity to form connections with the people developing those games and that allow for informal learning to happen in a situation where they might even be working towards an education certificate, not necessarily a degree, but but moving towards a certificate based model for education, where they can, by going in to get a drink with some friends, end up working for or running their own company through the entrepreneurial environment that they are doing that in. And it's also it's also a place that we can rent out for for large events like like uh, esports tournaments, etc, etc. So it's this it's this enchanted space, um, enchanted borrowing the, the language from from David Rose, enchanted objects, It's this enchanted space that is both virtual and non-virtual simultaneously, but allowing for, with the intention rather of putting informal learning to the forefront. And Michael, you probably yeah, have some time. So, so, so is it possible to conceive of any project, hypothetical in this case, that we're turning into a real project as a business, a social, a learning and a research model simultaneously? And instead of all of these being uh, separated out, the one aspect of it, which is MA bringing all of her her friends to the table is the research that can be done by wiring. I'll, I'll say it in a very sort of dumb way: the wiring of the brains of these young people playing these games to see what's happening in their brain when they're doing something as strategic as these massive online game playing. The same way they did with monks, they want to see what's happening. You know, so we see it as a as a, as a all of these things uh, happening uh, simultaneously in one place and. 
My model for practice for years has been to try to invent the projects and make them real if possible, that you would only write for students because you don't have clients like that. And uh, so this is one of them. We have two projects right now that, are, that have been on the boards for the last year that we're right on the verge of developing a whole business plan and trying to make it real and, and make it really get it out into the world. I mean, part of this is, yeah, okay, we want to keep the business going, but it's also to show is, is to bring entrepreneur as a mode of, of, of being into practice for Nelson's generation so that it's, 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 it's uh, the old phrase, doing good and doing well. You have a vision, you have a mission, and, and then you have the ability to carry it out. And, is, and if it's possible for us to make this project real, then Nels and the rest of his generation can always see that as a, an actual possibility. The same way we're able to say, nobody could ever tell us that a screwy idea like SciArc could ever exist. It does. So anything imaginable is possible. How do you take that into practice? So it's it's basically the phone is there for me to call other people as opposed to waiting for them to call me and say, I got a project for you. Still do that, but it's, it's uh, and inventing the kind of work that you would want to do with students. So as well, inventing the kind of work that you'd want to do with colleagues in a cross-sector way. So since mm. um, we've had, you know, we're lucky to be in such an enriched environment with so many talented people. In research, we are taking advantage of the fact that um, Southern California is packed with great people in the science of computation, the science of neuro, you know, of the brain, and we are we're taking advantage of that. So we want to bring those worlds together to recognize research is always ongoing. That's the beauty of this is if we're going to deal with a business model that is open source, that we're dealing with research which is also in some sense, even though it has IP wars, is it generally an open source in the sense of it's there to build continually with no doctrine, right? No doctrine. And so by bringing in scientists, researchers to help us think through projects, they bring knowledge that challenges very closed system ideas. So an example of that, we have researchers, spatial memory researchers, San Francisco uh, from Posit Science, as well as down in Los Angeles from Claremont Graduate School, Paul Zak in neuroeconomics, and mentioned Dane Clemenson at the Stark Lab. These are the kinds of minds we want to bring to projects. For instance, we've talked about education, but we're also really spearheading uh, right now a potential project in senior housing up on wood. And there, you know, you really need people who are understanding gerontology and understanding cognitive reserve in terms of gaming technologies. So we can take advantage of this. And let me let me share with you then a model, a way to think about this. So recently in the news, we've heard that in light of gamer space being an affinity space, we've heard of Nuvu, which is a new learning environment that has been developed by MIT for middle school kids. And it is an architectural training. It's architectural studios for middle school kids, two weeks where they get to develop, learn new skills, technological skills, 3D printing, virtual technologies, Adobe systems. And at the same time, they get to borrow on resources in the city to help them figure out their project, say, for the future of water systems in their city. We're not that different than middle school kids, right? We're turning to resources in our area to help us and do what architects have always done, which is pull together cross-sector teams to solve a problem. So that's been our model. The other model is to understand 
the new building, the new lab, which is in Brooklyn, which is a lab that's brought together AI, robotics, 3D printing companies. It's kind of a hub model companies that are working in a common space, that are sharing interest in research, but operating as their own project studios within this large naval space. What's the name of that space? The New Lab. New Lab, okay. So what you're seeing is the the affinity space is part of a movement now, a recognizing of creating spaces, studio spaces, reconfigured to bring people together, working with the advancing technologies and the talent source that's rich in cities where you've had great universities. There seems to be a naturally kind of self-selecting community within architecture and specifically within the community at SciArc to seek out these kinds of things and to seek out those communities. But how do you make sure that in terms of education as a social priority for all to access, for all to benefit from, how do you ensure that this kind of educational model, which is very much based on the intrinsic motivation that you were talking about before of someone wanting to explore something for their own passion or for their own interest and then finding a way to do that. How do you accommodate then those people who have zero intrinsic or necessarily extrinsic motivation to do anything, but you still get them into the space in a way that is overall helpful to build that future society? Yeah, I think it's uh, initially, I I still believe it's self-selection. I think things go dormant in us, but they, uh, they never disappear. And I think Informal learning is what uh, any species does from morning till night. It's just very specifically structured for what we've come to believe as the only way to learn, which is uh, formal. We worked last year at Arizona State with a, a school called the Herberger Youth Academy. And what it is, 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 is it's a school for gifted children, conventional Children, conventional students, there's special needs students, and there's uh, the gifted. And it turns out that all of them in varying degrees are, are on the spectrum. We're all on a spectrum. It's learning how to leverage that in a positive way. These kids, which is a small school, it's an experimental school, and it was, it was, uh, it's funded by a, a man who was pretty much left out in the woods because he was really smart, but he was an oddball and he was always in trouble. I mean, that's the... These are physical woods. This is not a metaphysical woods of... <laughs> Uh, metaphysical woods and physical woods, the, the woods of uh, Arizona. Uh, <laughs> he decided that, Arizona. that 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 it, that it wasn't an educational problem; it was a social problem to not have the capacity to identify young people early enough so that you can leverage what their capacities are and move it into the positive realm. These kids were like twelve-year-olds that are doing calculus with senior researchers at ASU, kind of kids, and they weren't all. From When I heard the word gifted, I always blanch when I hear that because you think they come from privileged families. Half of this group came from uh, lower economic groups and their parents identified them early enough and found ways to keep them engaged. And then finally, this school starts a couple of years ago. And it shows me that brilliance pops out anywhere. It doesn't have anything to do with language, ethnicity. So that really, that really uh, captured uh, our attention because we were all we were all working on the on the problem. The only way that architects and architectural educators can really crack this nut is by expanding once again how we define ourselves. There was a time when we were a field, and then we became a profession, and then when we wanted to bring intelligence back in instead of just metabolism, we became a discipline. And right now. Architecture is at the front end, but I think it has, we have to, we have to say that we're a platform. Architecture is a platform, just like law has been a platform. And with that in mind, 
which is that, that it's a, there's an affinity that, that, that MA and I have for that. And so the practice is to bring as many people that are non-architects to the table to discuss things, which are basically how do we solve these kinds of problems in a creative way. And then what we bring to it is the architectural mind, which is a way of taking any particular idea and being able to transform it into anything else, but also wanting to construct it. And I just want to mention, and along those lines, you know, there is a movement within education that impacts research and then impacts business. Product development is spatial studies. So it's a, a new platform that's brought together. It's cross-sector in nature. It's funded by NSF through Northwestern University. And the interest is in understanding the fields that would impact our understanding, our use of space. So this would mean architecture, weighing in with cartography, geospatial locations, dance, neuroscience, and neuropsychology. And who is open to taking those types of So the spatial studies, studies so the spatial studies grants created a center at, at Northwestern, and they've created a platform that we can all join. But now different universities are organizing within themselves spatial studies units. So, for instance, at UC Santa Barbara, they organized it in relationship to the cartography and psychology departments. And they started off by holding conferences because it was setting up a smoke signal, right? See who's there. Turns out there's a, a new generation of young graduate students are precisely interested in this issue. So, as I've said to Michael and Nels, you know, I think we're looking at uh, recognizing that spatial studies is itself a way of thinking about research that opens a door for architecture to step in and be in conversation with people that have implications for degrees, certificates, but research projects. So as pioneers in, in this approach to architectural practice and learning, utilizing, bringing in new technologies, what would you suggest a young architect or aspiring architect to become involved in this, in this uh, world, to become engaged and inspired? From my, um, my position, the best thing that you can do, not, not just for an aspiring architect, but for someone that has an interest in, in having an active role in, in contemporary society, contemporary entrepreneurialism, is learn how to write code. It doesn't matter what code it is. You can write Java, you can write C++, you can write Perl, you can Python, CSS, whatever. The point is that learning how to program machines allows you to think in ways that are systemic and that move beyond the otherwise linear form of education that you might receive. If I can provide a, a brief example, while working on a, on a school project, for one reason or another, I found myself researching how to determine the distance an object lies from the lens that took the picture of it based on a two-dimensional photograph. And I just, I, I, I was like four hours into this research and I took a full step back and I said, why am I even doing this? At that point, it didn't matter why I was doing that. The point was that I had jumped so far into the need to understand something that I didn't know that I was 100% committed to, to knowing that. And that's, that's a way of thinking that comes about from programmer's point of view, from a developer's point of view. It allows you to be both engineer and designer simultaneously. And once you get to the point where you're programming video games in virtual worlds, Without sounding too um, omnipotent here, it allows you to really play God 
in a certain way and and test out scenarios that you've always imagined or you've never thought of before and just explore the tools that are given you to create your own tools. Yeah, I really think that that writing code is the first thing um, on this path. Passive, active. I grew up in an education system that required me to be passive. I teach in a school that it's project-based learning, so it's active. How do we extend the notion of active. What I've seen with, with students using software is that they're subject to whoever wrote the initial code for that software. And so the logic of their thinking, which is another discussion, which I thought was going to happen in the, in the seminar last night, is what's the feedback loop from the technology that we use uh, back to the, how the brain begins to wire itself because it, it, it habitually gets caught in that loop. Uh, what I started to see students doing, uh, especially working with the game engines, the software that's used for designing games, is that they had one monitor, which was working with the code that was in the software, but figuring out how to get the software to do what they wanted it to do instead of what the software uh, wanted them. So it's like, it's drawing, basically. You make the pencil or the pen go where you want it to go. And all of the information is being moved around in your head. What happens when you have something that you consider a tool rather than a co-creative medium, you are subject to that and you become passive once again. And the third eye goes dormant and you're waiting, you're always in a reaction mode. You're waiting for something to show up on the screen. That is the heat death of creativity. So what Nels is talking about is the students now and the young professionals starting to become not only just active, but more entrepreneurial in defining the world that they want to work in. They do that by inventing projects. They do that by rewriting the code of whatever the software is. They see everything as a creative problem that is guided by some longer vision about why they're here doing this particular thing and living this kind of life. And I think those are, we impart knowledge, yes. We give skills, yes. But do we impart values? Do we impart values? And we do in, in I think, uh, a very general way, but are, are, are we intentionally imparting values? And I think that's one of the things that we have to do both as practitioners and as teachers and not just be subject to whatever the, whatever the, uh, the work is that we're doing. I really appreciate how your team is all coming together, working on a project with such distinctly different backgrounds. That said, I was wondering, Emma, if you could share some kind of inspiration yourself and that that helped you bring you to where you are right now doing the type well, of work. She's, she's our guru for keeping us all <laughs> together. The glue. Inspiration? You know, I was, first of all, I was lucky enough to meet Michael at the beginning of my career. I was a curator of education at Lugan Art Museum. Charles Demeray had organized an exhibition of Michael's and Tom Main's work. And I discovered the Vitruvius program that was brought in at the same time. We had to do a kids program to support the exhibition. And I just felt utter delight. And I, I remember, I remember in that moment because it has stayed in some sense, it brought us back together, right? As um, through a series of quinky dinks, that idea of seeing young kids work with story and work with materials that weren't trash. I remember Kathleen Cupper said they don't get to work with trash. They get to work with really beautiful pens and really great paper. And they they made such extraordinary works. I mean, it was such so delightful that I, as a young person, got to touch on my own education. And I came out of UCLA and I got to work in neuroscience, spinal cord injury labs. And I remember just working with physicists, engineers, and I'm going to say it, shamans, right? <laughs> trying to figure out how do we get the nervous system to spark again? And now we know spinal cord injury 
spinal cord injury is really advancing in its science in terms of helping people stand up again. So that was, that was my beginning as a student, which is understanding, being around brilliant people, working with technology to make something impossible change. And then when I, as a young curator, got to do watch children do something that they never thought children could do, I knew that that was where I wanted to be. And as a cross-cultural researcher, the first part of my career going to Asia and trying to understand, in some sense, the Western's view of Asia and why we thought they were they had something so fantastic for us in terms of cognitive development. It was also that exploration and that journey that kept me excited. So today, my word to young people is to reiterate that code gives them, if it will, gives them a skill that they they actually need to create the joy and, and wonder and to really look at what Rhoda's been mentioning, which is to stay in the project base, which is, I think, where you see all the inspiration with Maker Labs, et cetera, that are pointing out. And then to stay connected to their own joy. You know, my father said, you, you can take everything away from people, but you can't take away their education. You can't take away your learning. You can't take away that joy. So I think the challenge is how to stay connected to that when the heat is on. Thanks for listening to our Connect Sessions one-to-one with Michael Rotondi, M.A. Greenstein, and Nels Long of Rotolab. Danny Lavoinov edits the podcast, and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One to One. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, leave us a review, why not? We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at arcconnect.com. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>